So my name is Mark, serves one of the pastors here. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to meet you on the way out. And today we are going to begin our second week in Advent where we're going to be talking through peace, peace. And our, our sermon series that we've been going through is called The Light Has Come, where we're looking at Jesus being the light that this world so desperately needs and how we get to rejoice in him. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm 85? That's a psalm that we've already kind of been hearing in different, different bits through our worship, but we're going to be focusing our attention on verses 8 through 11 this morning. So that's Psalm 85, verses 8 through 11. In Psalm 85, while you're turning there, Psalm 85 is a psalm about the peace of God written by someone who wasn't in a very peaceful situation, which is like my favorite kind of psalm, right? That's, those, are the, those are the real ones. The scriptures give us real words, real passages that deal with real things. And so this is written by someone who's writing about the peace of God who's not in a very peaceful situation and yet has peace despite his circumstances. Do you know that the opposite of peace is anxiety? De debilitating worry. Smothering stress. And I found it really interesting last November, November, last year, not this past November, but November of last year, Seattle was ranked the most anxious city in the United States of America. We've recently lost that title, so I don't know what to think about that. <laughs> but Detroit now takes it. I'll just give you the spoiler so you don't Google it. Detroit now takes it as the most anxious city. But Seattle was rated the most anxious city in the United States with 54% of residents, 54% of residents feeling nervous, anxious, on edge, or stressed out. And if some of the, if that's like comfort words to some of you, <laughs> that's okay. It's at least 54% are, are, is comfort words to you right now, right? But that's a lot. That's a lot, and that's something... That's something to think about, something to talk about. So what then do we need? What do we need? How can we, church, be filled with the peace of God? The peace of God here in Psalm 85, it teaches us that peace comes from setting our minds on God's promises walking in the salvation that he has secured in us and waiting on God's every purpose. Because all that he wills is ultimately perfect and good. There are three words that I've kind of set the thrust of this sermon that I'll kind of keep coming back to at the ends of it, which is trusting, walking, waiting, these are all actions that we are given and equipped with by God himself to be filled with peace. 
So if you're anxious, if you're nervous, if you're stressed out on edge, that's okay. Welcome. There's at least 53% of other people here feeling the same thing. <laughs> but peace is something that we all desire, something that's promised to us in multiple places, but something that is ultimately given to us only in Jesus. So would you stand with me real quick while we read Psalm 85, verses 8 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. It says, I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is very near to those who fear him, so that glory may dwell in our land. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Truth will spring up from the earth and righteousness will look down from heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, may I have a seat? Father, I pray that you would help us see and experience the goodness of Jesus. God, I pray that you would fill us with the peace that you promise. I pray that as we read the scriptures, we would trust you, we would walk with you, and we would wait on you. And in every circumstance that we come across, peace would be the overriding experience that we have as we get to live with you. In Christ's name, amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor and theologian and he was sent and he died in a, in a Nazi concentration camp. And when he was sent there, he, he wrote this series of letters and poems from prison. And one of them was, one of the poems that he read was so compelling to me that the, the overriding piece that was kind of through it just kind of permeates the whole thing. And I wanted to read that to you. It says, who am I? They often tell me. I step from my cell's confinement, calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me. I talk to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bear the days of misfortune, equitably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I know of myself? restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat yearning for colors for flowers for the voices of birds thirsting for words of kindness for neighborliness 
tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance. I'm weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? Am I this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others? And before myself, a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I read that because what resonated with me was the very real example of how the absence of peace can tear someone up, can tear someone up from within. But the presence of peace can make you unshakable. The presence of peace can make you unshakable even in the midst of trouble and difficult circumstances and even in Bonhoeffer's case, death. The peace we are after, that we are striving to experience is that peace. The peace of Philippians 4 Verse seven, as it describes it, peace which surpasses all understanding that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we come to a psalm and we come to a context in which Israel struggled reconciling the human experience of pain and of sorrow with the reality of God's redemptive love. That's what we kind of come into in Psalm 85. And on the onset of pain, the Israelites drew further and further away from God. In an effort to find peace, they ran away from it. This resulted in feeling the absence of God, of experiencing sin and striving after sin, looking kind of for love in all the wrong kind of places, right? And for a nation, it's looking at other leaders and all this stuff, sorts of stuff that then led to receiving God's discipline. And as four, verse four says, to God's displeasure. So that's what we go into. And that's enough, that's enough to break anyone down, right? But if God had kept them there, they would have been broken down completely. But he didn't. Instead, Instead of a declaration of judgment, there is God's declaration of peace. So let's, let me draw your attention to verse 8 again, where it says, I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. So we begin to see a, a new definition that we need to accept, which peace is this term associated now not by 
finding yourself somewhere else, but in the presence of God, the presence of God being with his people. Peace is not a state of mind thrown down from God, but it's a fruit of the spirit with God. There was a man speaking to a a big crowd of people and talking to them about peace. Um, And he asked his audience to close their eyes and imagine peace. So everybody does that. They close their eyes. I don't want you to do it, but they close their eyes. And after a few seconds, the audience was invited to kind of just share what they thought of, what came to their mind when they said peace. And, And as they were sharing one, someone described like a field of flowers. The other one described a mountaintop. Another person described the beach, you know, all this scenic stuff. Another one, like, described a beautiful lake. And after everyone described their their picture, this guy commented, he said, isn't it interesting that when asked to imagine peace, the first thing we do is eliminate everyone else? (laughs) That's telling. That's, isn't it? And funny. <laughs> I hope they were on a retreat or something, where it's like community bonding retreat or something. But for God to have peace with his people, God is to be with his people. We will always be confronted to believe that peace will be found in yourself by yourself. Remove that. That's not true. Remove that because peace is always found with God. The foolishness that Psalm 85 describes is one that's describing an entire nation seeking peace outside of God. But Jesus grants us peace in our distress so that we're not tempted to go further and further away from him, but we're, temp- but we're drawn to come nearer and nearer to him because God has already declared it. So trust him. Trust God. In the midst of distress, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of frustrations, trust him that what he has declared is true. That is the first beginning to peace. Romans 5, verse 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. The scriptures share story after story of a people looking for peace in all of the wrong places and a God yearning for them to find it in himself. The grace offered, the grace offered isn't burdensome. It isn't distressing, but it's set in a declaration a firmness. It's not from yourself, by yourself, but with Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. It's the beginning of obtaining peace with God. 
is trusting what God says is actually true. And through the Spirit, setting our minds on his declarations, not on our anxieties. But let me take you to verse 9, where we see God's restoration for peace. Verse 9, it says, His salvation is very near to those who fear him, so that glory may dwell in our land. So we see here peace, it's restorative. And the thrust here is to see that the nearness of God and to walk in that glory. And continuing the same kind of, the the same thought of verse 8, if we can trust God to be true to his word, then we can trust God that he will ultimately restore peace to the world. So now we're starting to see peace is not just an internal trusting, but it has movement. There's a movement to peace, right? Peace isn't an absence of fear, but obtaining the presence of something else, something that redirects my fear when in motion, something that redirects my fear where it should be. The God of peace will be with me always. The God of peace will be with you always. That's the declaration. That's something I can trust in. So now I apply that. I apply that by moving, by walking in faith. And that's what the amazing thing about peace in the peace is that we are the church to proclaim is that the peace that's experienced in the world, true peace that's experienced in the world, is a people knowing what's truest about themselves. The way that you display peace through your faith is by walking in a confidence of knowing what's truest about you, which is your salvation, which is being in Christ. Acts 4 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. The reason that we walk in peace and we trust in God's promises is because Jesus secures our peace in our salvation. I love Ephesians 2, where he says, He came and proclaimed the good news of peace. To you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So I have a confession to make because I have definitely had moments where the peace that I am to be walking with and trusting Jesus in was not necessarily reflected in my outward actions. I can tell you an example. I can guarantee you it will happen every time you see me at the beach with my family. The last thing The last description I think of when I think of the beach with two toddlers and a baby is peace. 
Terror is better. But when we were in, in Guam, we were surrounded by beaches, and that's like one of the things that we would go to. And I, every time we would go, there'd be different tourists there, and I was the most stressed out person there. I'm like constantly looking over my shoulder at where my kids are, thinking they're going to drown something. Gabe was always going to the water. Elliot was always off doing something by himself. He's always eating sand. Tavia was being buried in the sand by her brothers. It was stressful. It was crazy. Peace was not that. If, if I was to be, if someone came up to me and say, where is your peace dwelling securely? I would say, I have no idea. I'm just stressed out right now. I can't, I can't see anything. Stop talking to me about that. And that's, that happens. That happens, but it's something that we do need to fight against. There may be something that comes to your mind where you can say, yes, Mark, you're talking about peace, but this situation ain't no peace. But this for me, it might be the beach. For you, it might be something else. Whatever it is, whatever it is, we need to bring that to the Lord and practice the peace that Jesus has declared over us. Walk in the peace of God. It's not easy, but we are called to it. This to practice faith by walking in the peace of God. I want you to think with me about the armor of God. The armor of God, if you're, not, if you're unfamiliar with that, it's a passage in Ephesians. It's classic passage describing the, the spiritual armor of a Christian, right? That, that the Christian is clothed with to protect against spiritual warfare. But Christians, especially I think now, we sometimes misunderstand the thinking of the, of the Christian underneath the armor. We kind of imagine them to be a bold gladiator where the armor is now put on and now you're the warrior. But the Christian described in Ephesians is a pilgrim, is a pilgrim that's on a journey, that's walking and needs to be strengthened and equipped for the journey ahead of what God has called them to do. Ephesians 6 is, is describing a pilgrim being clothed with armor. And the rest of the description is we are given this helmet of salvation. Why? To be thoughtful, to protect our minds against the powers saying that we are lost and that we are alone and that we are on a journey that leads to no end. We're given a breastplate to guard our hearts and to be guarded in the righteousness of Christ. We have truth as our belt to support us in all that we do and all that we believe, and we are given a shield of faith, a sword of the Spirit. In verse 15, it says, your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. Walking in the peace of God means that the Christian is meant to be in motion. Walking in the peace of God is dynamic. It's not static. The gospel of 
peace drives you forward in peace. Yes, there are going to be things that are outside of your control. Yes, you are going to have stresses. Yes, you are going to have anxieties that come. You'll certainly be confused at certain moments along the way. But we are not called to harbor our faith in a motionless place, but to move forward in the peace that God has equipped us with. Walk in peace. That is the calling of the Christian, of the pilgrim, moving towards Christ. By trusting God's declaration of peace, And by walking in his restoration for peace, we begin to discover God's purpose of peace. And it shines brighter and brighter. Let me draw your attention to verses uh, 10 through 11. It says, faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Truth will spring up from the earth and righteousness will look down from heaven. That's just, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. I want to unpack it a bit. Faithful love, truth, righteousness, and peace are the purposes of God all in Christ. When you read that, faithful love, truth, righteousness, and peace, you are describing Jesus himself. He is God's purpose for peace as the Prince of Peace. And he, and he bore our sin on the cross so we might receive it. The beauty of Jesus and how he is described here is meant to be so, so contrasted to the cross. The cross with his blood The cross in which he bore for us is so that we would be given that peace and confidence to move forward in faith. Advent is the celebration of Christ coming to earth, coming to bring what we so desperately need, Jesus himself. And in that, in that salvation, we find peace to a wandering world filled with darkness. The light has come. John 14 says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. A friend of mine recently, when I was talking to him, he said something I've been been chewing on for a couple weeks now, where we were talking about the virtues And he said, practicing peace in unpeaceful unpeaceful situations grows patience. That kind of blew my mind. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're kind of like drinking coffee with someone and they say something and you're like, you know, and you just kind of like pause. That's what happened. Awkward pause. Awkward drinking coffee pause. But virtues complement each other. Virtues complement each other and are meant to develop the whole person. 
practicing one virtue will eventually make the person whole as one grows towards Christ fully. And then something miraculous happens. In that, in that becoming like Christ, in those virtues connecting and complementing one another, we begin to be peacemakers. Peace is dynamic. It is in motion and it multiplies. Peace multiplies out. It moves outward as heirs of righteousness sow peace to others. James 3.18, this is what he's talking about. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace to those who cultivate peace. So we have a responsibility, friends. Hearing the the lie of peace is a thing that I have that is just my own that I'm going to find out on the beach, minus me, and I'm going to find in the mountains, maybe that's a better thing, that's a lie because peace, true peace of God multiplies. It makes you, the one sandaled with peace, a peacemaker. And allow that, allow the peace of God to grow you more fully into Christ and anticipate the movements of grace while you wait for his return. I think the, the, the power of that is Jesus satisfies us with peace while we wait with anticipation. He will not leave you wanting. So I want to come back to the question of that the question I asked in the beginning, which is how can we, the church, be filled with the peace of God? Trust Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Become more satisfied in his control over challenges and more eager for his return. In every trial, in every circumstance, and in every celebration, God has brought peace to his people. Let us rejoice in that. Be glad in that. Let's pray.